Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. I'm glad you're here. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the elders here at BPC. We are going to be in the book of James today, so I'll give you some time to find your way to James But before we we read our text, I want to back us up a little bit into history. I want to take you back to the 4th century BC, about 350, 360 years before Jesus Christ was born. Alexander the Great of Macedonia led his army of Macedonian and Greek troops on a conquest of what was considered at the time the known world. So they started in parts of Europe, found their way to Africa and across Asia, finally ending in India. Now, according to one historian early on, uh, Alexander looked out across this vast empire that he had created, and he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Now, what you may not know is that in Alexander's army was a young Greek soldier named Pyro. And Pyro was interested in philosophy. And so when uh, the Greek army ended up in in India, uh, Pyro met this group of Indian philosophers known as the Naked Skeptics. Now, the reason they were known as the Naked Skeptics is because they were, well, naked. These guys were totally nude. Apparently, they were skeptical about a lot of things, including clothing. So after his encounter with these naked skeptics, Pyro began to develop his own philosophy of doubt. And the idea was to doubt everything, including the idea that you were doubting everything. This was a radical form of academic skepticism. And so Pyro, after the war, after the campaign, uh, did what uh, any good Greek philosopher worth his weight in ideas would do. He went back to Greece and opened his own school of philosophy, of skepticism. And thus, professional skepticism was born. Now, long before philosophers doubted external world realities and everyday quotidian types of beliefs, uh, there were two other very important doubters in our history. The original naked skeptics, our first parents, Adam and Eve who rather than trust in the goodness of God's wisdom, chose to follow their doubts and sin against the holy creator, God. And thus they spiraled into intellectual decay and spiritual necrosis, the fall. Doubt became a reality of the human condition. And here we are today, still doubting. Now with that said, let me be clear that doubt is not always a bad thing. Okay. Had Adam and Eve doubted the dragon, doubted the serpent in the garden, we may not be in the same mess we are today, right? We wouldn't have seen the engendering of of the fall. Doubt about the existence of God, doubt about the character and activity of God, however, is a very negative thing. It leads to a path of ultimate self-destruction. So we do need to acknowledge that doubt is real. It's a real issue, something we all will struggle with at times. We also need to understand that God calls us to belief. 
We need to understand that God is merciful to those who doubt, and at the same time, we need to acknowledge that nowhere in Scripture are we called to doubt. We're called to faith. See, Jesus didn't say that if you have doubt the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains, right? Jesus didn't give Peter a big high five as Peter sunk into the water after stepping out of the boat and doubting Jesus. Jesus didn't call us to repent and doubt. He called us to repent and believe. And when Thomas demanded proof of the resurrection, Jesus did have compassion on him and show him that proof. But he said afterward, blessed are those who believe, though they have not seen So yes, Jesus shows compassion to us in our doubt, but he ultimately calls us out of doubt and into belief. Scripture treats doubt as a damaging thing, a spiritually damaging thing. So over the next three Sundays, I want to lead us through a series on faith and doubt and look at the nature of faith and doubt in Scripture. There are numerous texts we could go to, but I want to focus today on James 1, And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll look at several other passages as well. So let's go ahead and read from James chapter 1. Here at Bergen Park Church, one of our core values is that we are anchored in the Bible. We take the Word of God very seriously. God's Word, as revealed by the Holy Spirit, as illuminated to us as we read it, is really the thing that anchors us as we learn who God is. So let's go to the Word. Let's go to James We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. My focus will be verses 5 through 8, but we'll read from verse 1 just to give you some context. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand this word that you have revealed to us by your power that we would be edified by this word, that we would be transformed by this word and made into Christ's likeness through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you uh, just a little background, some context uh, for this passage. The author of this letter is James. James, the half-brother of Jesus. And the reason scholars would believe that this is James, the brother of Jesus, and not James, the apostle, is because James, the apostle, was martyred at a very early time in church history. You can read about that account in the book of Acts, I think chapter 12, uh, James was put to death. And so this James is the brother of Jesus who went on to become one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, 
He was the pastor of this group of Jewish Christians. And so James here is writing to the 12 tribes. That is, Jewish believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have now been scattered out from Jerusalem into various Roman and Greek cities in the Middle East and possibly even into Europe because of persecution that had broken out in the church, against the church. So that's a bit of context. Uh, James tends to jump from theme to theme. Some scholars describe the book of James as the Proverbs of the New Testament because James tends to skip all over the place, talking about so many different subjects. Um, But here, James, really what, what he's trying to tell us, and I think I would summarize it this way, is that when asking for godly wisdom to correctly situate ourselves spiritually, to understand who God is, to persevere through the challenges of life, when asking for wisdom, we must trust that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. Now, understand that James is all too familiar with doubt. If you go to John chapter 7, verse 5, for example, or Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we read that Jesus' own brothers did not believe who he was. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. James doubted Jesus Christ. And now, years later, things have changed. He's a follower of Jesus, and he's warning us against doubt. So the grammar of this passage suggests that while James is speaking of wisdom in matters of how to deal with persecution, trials, uh, problems in life, the wisdom to which he refers here is much more than that as well. He's talking generally about the wisdom of God for how to live a Christian life. He's urging the church to trust God over and instead of human folly. This is the problem of faith versus doubt, the classic problem, faith and doubt. Now, I want to be really clear on the kind of doubt about which James is warning us in this passage because doubt is a highly nuanced and very complex subject, not only in theology and philosophy, but in the Bible. This is not an easy subject uh, to to think about when we, we wrestle with this idea of what doubt is. Understand that James, again, is a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout the world. So these people are uh, well-versed in the Roman customs and, and Greek culture, Greek philosophy, all of the stuff that existed around them. That's the context, okay? So this should tell us a little something about the kind of doubt James might be referring to and the kind of doubt about which he's, he's probably not talking. So allow me to make several ancillary remarks on the nature of doubt before we delve deeper into uh, the text. First off, In spite of the fact that James is writing to a church that was surrounded by Greek thought, I really don't think James is worried here about Greek academic types of skeptical problems. And by academic skepticism, what I have in mind is this idea that I can know certain things about the world around me. I know that here's a hand. I know that there's a pulpit here. I know that there are people sitting in front of me. I know these things, yet I don't know that I'm not deceived by some sort of global skepticism some sort of skeptical scenario. Therefore, I don't really know that here is a hand. Does that make sense? It's kind of a circularity. The brain in the vat problem, okay? Philosophers have been working on this for over 2,000 years. 
Here's a hand, I don't know that I'm not a brain in a vat, therefore there is no hand. Skeptical uh, problems in philosophy. I mentioned pyro, right? Radical skepticism, or skepticism about the, the, the uniformity of nature. You can drop an object a thousand times, it falls to the ground every time, but you don't necessarily know that the next time you drop the object, it won't float away, that sort of stuff. That's what kept the Greeks up at night, those kinds of problems. But understand here that James is a practitioner, okay? He's a practitioner. He's worried about faith and doubt in action. Faith and doubt as it pertains to the nature, the character, the activity of God. Okay, that's what he's worried about. So we could put out of our minds, I think, this idea that doubt is a, a, a purely or merely intellectual problem. Secondly, I don't think James is worried about the kind of doubts we have when we ask deep questions for the purpose of expanding our knowledge, of avoiding falsehood and, and gaining knowledge. Well-placed incredulity is not necessarily a, a bad thing. It can lead to maximizing true beliefs and minimizing false beliefs. And in fact, we're called to do this as Christians. Right? Jesus' prayer in John 17, 3 is that we would know God. We would know the Son of God, right? We want knowledge of truth. We want to maximize knowledge of uh, true things. And so intellectual reluctance, suspicion, caution, even a little bit of agnosticism at times in particular areas of life is not a bad thing. I learned a valuable lesson about doubt when I was a child. I was probably four or five years old. I was playing with my siblings in our basement and we came across a mousetrap in the unfinished corner of the basement. My older sister convinced us to put our finger in the mousetrap. She said, well, it's, it's a mousetrap. It only works on mice, right? You'll be fine. <laughs> so after some debate and deliberation and reflection on this, I decided to be the one to volunteer to put my finger in the mousetrap. I was credulous, right? I was naive. And so I proceeded to put my finger in the mousetrap and regretted it. And it wasn't the first or last time a little bit of healthy skepticism may have spared me some trouble. Right? We've all been there, right? You can probably tell stories as well. There are certain common sense things we need to have a bit of skepticism, right? If it looks like a Ponzi scheme, don't invest in it. Right? If it sounds like a religious cult, don't sell your soul to it. If it looks poorly constructed, don't walk out on it or drive your car on it. If it smells rotten and mold is growing on it, don't eat it. In contrast, gullible people don't ask questions, and this ultimately can lead to problems. Satan is a liar, the father of lies. Don't believe him. James would agree. So to reiterate, we're not really worried here about purely academic problems, intellectual doubts. We're not so much worried about the kind of skepticism that leads us to truth and knowledge. What James has in mind here is something very specific. I think he's worried about, ultimately, religious distrust. Not just distrust of God's existence, but distrust of God's character, who he is. The word for doubt that James employs in this passage really means to separate. 
to decompose something down into its elemental parts, into pieces. Doubt is a division of allegiance, and this is the idea we see in verse 8, the double-minded man, two souls, two spirits, two minds, pulled in two directions. So James is worried that we might divide our faith between God and ourselves, between God and some other thing, that we would retain hope in things other than God as a backup, just in case God doesn't come through for us. That's the, the issue here. James is worried about a divided heart that desires divine wisdom on the one hand, but that seeks wisdom in mere human thinking on the other hand. So James is telling us that true wisdom must come from a source outside of ourselves, right? To doubt God is to deny his wisdom, to be swept away by human philosophies that promise really just untenable solutions to real problems, To doubt God's wisdom is really a form of adultery. And you heard me right. Where we attempt to seek out answers in the arms of something other than the truth, other than God. Doubting God's ability and desire to provide wisdom is a serious thing. So let's take note of verse 5. Faith seeks wisdom. Faith seeks the kind of wisdom that allows us to apply our knowledge and our experience. In Scripture, wisdom is that which correctly situates our beliefs and our practices in a way that brings glory to God. It's a bit more than just knowledge. Wisdom is not just a matter of how much you know or understand. It's a matter of godly character. You see, you can know a lot of things. You can memorize Scripture You can teach, you can talk intelligently about things, but the question is what you do with that knowledge. Have you surrendered your life totally to God's will? Do you love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you demonstrate tenderness and care to God's people? Wisdom is more than just knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in the Proverbs. In other words, wisdom springs from a relationship with God that's rooted in trust, rooted in worship, rooted in obedience. God is the giver of spiritual wisdom. So true wisdom is born of faith, and the faith we're talking about here, again, is not just belief in God, not just a cognitive attitude about God, though it is that. But it's more. It's a confident, unwavering alignment with God and with the things of God. If doubt is a decomposition and division of our allegiance to God, then faith in this context is a full-blown commitment to trust all that God is and all that he does. Wisdom cannot be separated from faith. And what James is telling us is that if you want to know the world rightly, you need to know God rightly. If you want to know yourself rightly, you need to know God rightly. To seek wisdom apart from God is really to sin against him. And this was our first parents' error in Genesis 3. They attempted to seek wisdom that was not of God, and thus they fell into intellectual and moral malfunction. They they fell into sin. So there are two ways to seek wisdom. Only one is going to pay off. 
Now, when I was a teenager, there were two ways to borrow dad's car on Friday night. Option one, I go to my dad, I explain where I'm going, what I intend to do, who I'm with, when I intend to arrive home. I ask politely. That's option one. Option two, I take the car, right? Which option do you suppose ended well? <laughs> Usually option one worked well. <clears throat> option two led to restrictive sanctions, right? <laughs> so you've been there, you've, you, you've done it, you've seen it, right? <clears throat> And there's one good way to go on this. And in the same way, there are two ways to seek wisdom. Option one is to ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, without reproach, and it will be given to him according to God's perfect will, according to God's grace. Option two, seek wisdom in yourself. God wants us to ask, right? He wants us to trust in him for the response, History has shown repeatedly that human wisdom does not lead us to the utopia that we think it will, right? Look at the 20th century. Two world wars, godless religion, communism that led to more deaths in the 20th century than all the religious wars in history combined. Millions dead. Human wisdom. Let's see how far that gets us, huh? So faith seeks wisdom, but the second thing James wants Christians to understand is that faith anchors us in the truth. Faith aims at truth, and it finds its origin in God. Faith is truth-conducive. It conveys, it, it transmits truth. And this is really what James, I think, is talking about here in verse 6 when he talks about the waves and the wind. There are other passages uh, like this in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul addresses this in Ephesians 4 where he talks about how God has given his church an anchor of truth through the teaching of the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, teachers, and preachers to build up God's people for works of service so that the body will be built up in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then he goes on and says, then you will no longer be like infants, children, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. See, without the truth of God's word, we have no anchor. We're blown by various ideologies, philosophies, and religions. Now, some people think or claim that faith is irrational, that it's antithetical to truth, that faith is a feeling a leap into the darkness, wishful thinking, maybe a fool's hope, that sort of thing. But what James is saying is that the content of faith is the truest thing you could ever experience. God. Faith and truth go hand in hand. And without faith that seeks wisdom, you're never going to know the truth. So the double-minded man is the man who really doesn't believe God. He can't make up his mind whether he really wants God's wisdom or not. He's like a kid in an ice cream shop. You can only have one flavor, but there are too many options. He can't make up his mind. Or a fisherman moving his boat around the lake trying to find the perfect spot never actually casts for a fish. 
or the story of that donkey who was equally hungry and equally thirsty and equally positioned between the hay and the water and ends up just dying because he can't make up his mind, right? That's the problem, the double-minded man. And I think the reason people waver in faith when they ask God for wisdom is because they don't really want what God's going to give. We need to be honest. I think that's the idea behind verses 7 and 8, where the doubter is said to receive nothing from the Lord. You see, asking for wisdom is a dangerous thing because God might actually answer and give you his wisdom. Do you really want the wisdom of God that exposes your sin? Think about that. Do you really want the kind of wisdom that makes you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ? Do you really want the wisdom of God that uncovers the meaninglessness of a godless life and that leads you to the cross in repentance? Do you really want the wisdom to discern the will of God for your life and answer a call that might require a major sacrifice on your part? See, we need to ask ourselves, do we really want to approach the Lord with an undivided heart to stand before the holy God who judges all men? Do we really want to know who he is? To experience his love, his grace, his mercy, to be washed of sin, to be cleansed by the blood of the lamb, that stuff sounds pretty good. What about discipline? What about being molded, transformed, humbled? Or as Jesus speaks of in John 15, being pruned, cleaned by the word. You see, when we ask for wisdom and want it, when we ask for wisdom and seek it in the word of God, he will show us things our eyes have never seen before. Wisdom sought in faith will lead us to the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for those who believe. True wisdom is a bit counterintuitive. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the wisdom of God was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The Jews were seeking wisdom in the law without God. At times, the Greeks were seeking it in their philosophy without God. But the reality is human wisdom leads to death. Human wisdom tells us to believe in ourselves. To be honest, that's Disney garbage, okay? It is. Follow your heart, believe in yourself. Doubt the institutions and the authorities and your upbringing and your education and your religion and your God and your parents and everything else, but believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. See, a lot of failed, miserable people have believed in themselves. You know where self-belief gets us at the end of the day, at the end of life? Hell. My concern is that the more our culture values and talks about this idea of authenticity and honesty in our leaders, and and that's not a bad thing, don't hear me wrong, but the more it's become fashionable for Christian leaders to boast about their doubts, to fuel and feed their doubts rather than seek the truth in God's word. It's almost as if they're trying to say, well, look at me, I can relate, I'm a skeptic too, I get it. A couple weeks ago, 
Pastor Dan had referenced uh, Joshua Harris in his message. Remember this guy, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, dedicating his life to helping young people start out well in their marriage, serve and honor God in their relationships. In 2019, he divorced his wife and left the faith. After wrestling, not just wrestling with doubt to get to the truth, but playing dangerously with doubt. Marty Sampson, the guy from Hillsong, you listen to his music, you sing his songs, walked away from the faith. After playing with doubt, deconstructing his faith. And it's not just popular evangelical leaders, even scholars. Bart Ehrman is a good example. Prominent New Testament evangelical scholar has renounced the faith. He's living as an agnostic, dedicating his life to debunking the New Testament and the historicity of the gospel message. A few years ago, I was at a conference uh, in Europe uh, for pastors, and I met this so-called pastor, this woman who claimed that she wasn't even sure if God existed. A pastor who doesn't believe in God. That's like saying I'm a dentist and I don't believe in teeth. (laughs) You see the problem. Doubt is a real thing. We're all gonna struggle with and wrestle with doubts at different times in our life. That's just a reality. Maybe some of you today are wrestling with very serious doubts. Thinking, I can't believe that God really cares for me. That may be where you are, but I would encourage you, don't rest in that doubt. Don't stay in that doubt. God calls us out of doubt into faith. All right, talk to a Christian friend, somebody you trust. Talk to me, talk to one of our elders, if that is you right now. Seek the truth. And see, understand, too, that this is not just about who has the most faith. It's not about the amount of faith you have. It's about the object of your faith, and that is Jesus Christ. This is why in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read that faith itself is a gift of God. If you're lacking in faith, go to God. Go to his word. God gives us the faith necessary to ask for the wisdom necessary to know him, to love him, to follow him. See, we're called to put our faith in the only one who can undo the nefarious effects of sin, doubt, and death. There's only one thing that can deliver us. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, according to his word alone, for God's glory alone. There's no alternative, no other option. The only person worthy of our faith is the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, God the Father, who sent him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and the Holy Spirit of God, who raised him from the dead and who seals us for the day of redemption. So I would urge you, brothers and sisters, we need to pursue faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us, Uh, no matter where we're at today in in these doubts. Pursue God, pursue his word. He will give you wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
We thank you so much for this word, um, for what you've given us today. We thank you that the wisdom of God, though it is foolishness to many, though it seems to be a stumbling block, this is the only thing that can save us. Lord, help us to trust in you, to trust in Jesus Christ, the son who gave his life in our place, who took on our sin and imputed his righteousness to us so that by faith in him we could have eternal life. It's the only way. Help us, Lord, to rest in that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.